Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Dogs are an important part of our lives, and keeping them protected is a top priority, especially against nasty parasites. That's why you got to check out NextGuard Plus, a Foxaloner, Moxidectin, and Pyrantal chewable tablets. NextGuard Plus chews provide one-and-done monthly protection that kills fleas and ticks, prevents heartworm disease. Plus, it treats and controls roundworms and hookworms. That's a whole lot of protection packed into a delicious beef-flavored, soft chew designed to make monthly dosing easy and enjoyable. So the next time you're at the vet, ask about NextGuard Plus chews. They're the one-and-done monthly parasite protection you want for your dog. Use with caution in dogs with a history of seizures or neurologic disorders. Dogs should be tested for existing heartworm infection prior to starting a preventive. This program is sponsored by the Kavli Foundation, based in Los Angeles, California. The Kavli Foundation is dedicated to advancing science for the benefit of humanity. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. You know, I often think of dream sleep as a Google search gone wrong. Let's say that, you know, I type into Google, Alan Alder, and the first page is all of your incredible back catalog of, of accomplishments. But then I go to page 20, and it's about a field hockey game in Utah. <laughs> and I think, hang on a second, what on earth is... But if I read it and I look, there's a very distant, very non-obvious association. When you start to collide things together that shouldn't normally go together... It sounds like the biological basis of creativity. And no wonder as a consequence, no one has ever told you, you know, Alan, you should really stay awake on a problem. That's Matthew Walker. He's the ultimate sleep guru. He's the author of a best-selling book called Why We Sleep. And he's the host of the Matt Walker podcast, where he addresses just about every question about sleep you've ever asked. Which is why I began our conversation with an urgent question of my own. This is really important that you're here today because I'm, I'm groggy today and I need, I need a diagnosis. Here's what happens. In the middle of the night, I woke up because of the call of nature. And when, when I was back in bed, I thought, okay, this should just take a couple of minutes. Half an hour later, 40 minutes later, I'm still staring into the dark. So I took a half an Ambien. You did? And it did put me to sleep. Now, is there anything wrong with taking that kind of a, of a pill? I'm typically not the biggest fan of Ambiena and its like-kind brethren because the way it works is by simply sedating your brain. It goes after the inhibitory neurons of the cortex and knocks them out. So when you take Ambien, um, you certainly lose consciousness. But to argue you're in naturalistic sleep is an equal fallacy, I think. Because if I show you the electrical signature of your sleep with Ambien versus naturally... It's a very different signature. There's a particular dent in your deep sleep that is perhaps undesirable. There are some medications that I would suggest, though. Um, one of them is a new class of drugs called the DORAs, um, D-O-R-A, small s, and it stands for dual arexin uh, receptor antagonist. It's a fancy way of saying we discovered that there is a chemical in the brain that in narcoleptic patients is deficient, and it's called orexin. 
and it's the wake-promoting chemical. So because patients with narcolepsy are constantly falling asleep inappropriately during the day, we realized it's because they don't have enough of this orexin chemical like a finger to flip the light on the wakefulness switch of the brain. So after that discovery, some smart people in drug companies realized, well, insomnia is the reverse problem, where at night people need to get sleepy, but they can't. Whereas in patients with narcolepsy, they want to stop being sleepy during the day. So they reversed the, the chemical equation and they developed drugs that rather than enhanced orexin, which is what we have for drugs for narcoleptic patients, which brings them awake during the day, we block it with these new form of drugs and we turn off the light switch chemical of wakefulness and therefore we let naturalistic sleep come to your brain rather than just simply sedating it. Right. I'm curious about other things that may interrupt or prohibit the natural evolution of the sleep process. Like, what about taking naps? It's a great question. And naps are a double-edged sword. We find that naps, where you go up to about 15 minutes and beyond, they give some amazing benefits for both brain and for body. You have to be a little bit careful with making the nap too long. Once it goes past 20 minutes, you go into the deeper stages of sleep. And when you come out of that longer nap, it's as though someone woke you up at, you know, 2 a.m. Boy, do you not feel awake. If you come out of deep sleep, we all have that type of experience. But the more dangerous concern I have is not about the sleepiness you feel after you've napped when you wake up during the day, but more importantly, how does that nap impact your sleep at night? And my advice to people is, if you are struggling with sleep at night, do not nap during the day. Because as you're awake during the day, you're building up this incredible, wonderful sleepiness chemical called adenosine. And the more of it you build up, the sleepier that you feel. And after about 16 hours of sleepiness chemical adenosine building up, you should be able to fall asleep and stay asleep. But if you bring that back to naps, if you nap during the day, it's like a pressure valve on a cooker and you just release some of that healthy sleepiness. And then when it comes time for you to fall asleep at night, it's going to be harder for you mm. to fall asleep or harder for you to fall back asleep when you wake up because you haven't got as much weight of healthy sleepiness weighing you down because the nap evacuated some of that healthy sleepiness. Does that make some sense, Alan? It does. Somebody mentioned to me that Thomas Edison, who was famous for taking <laughs> naps, had a way of waking himself up without an alarm clock, it's I think. It's brilliant. Edison was an acclaimed short sleeper, and people say to me, well, if sleep is so great for creativity and problem solving, Edison said he didn't sleep very much at night. How do you square that circle? And he was a habitual napper during the day. I've got lots, lots of great pictures of him on his workbench or in the garden taking a nap. And he understood the power and brilliance of napping for creativity and he used it ruthlessly as a tool and you're right what he would do is he would sit in a study with an armchair that had a rest on it for his arms he would take two steel ball bearings and pick them up in his hand then he would place a metal saucepan underneath the arm of the chair and then he would put a pad of paper and a pencil on his desk and he would gradually lean back and so he didn't go too far into that deep sleep as you described. What happens as we go 
deep into sleep, our muscle tone relaxes. He would release the steel ball bearings. They would crash on the <laughs> saucepan, wake him up, and then he would write down all of the ideas. And in fact, he called it, he had a phrase for it. He called it the genius gap. And he would in, install, if you look at photos historically of his house, he had around his house what he called nap cots, like little cots for children, but for humans. And they were designed so you could go there and take a nap. Isn't that, isn't that genius? Isn't that brilliant? Maybe it's time to ask you, what is sleep? What, what happens in sleep? What's it for? How does it work? So sleep as a, as a process, at least in humans, and in fact, in all mammalian species, it's broadly separated into two main types. I think many of us sense that at night I go to bed and my mind is largely blank and I'm, my body is still, and I just have this thing called sleep. And then eight hours later, I wake up. But sleep is much more complex and firstly, we have two main types called non-rapid eye movement sleep and rapid eye movement sleep or non-REM and REM sleep. And non-REM sleep is further divided into four separate stages, um, <laughs> unimaginatively called stages one through four. We're, we're incredibly <laughs> creative in the sleep field. Um, Need to get a rest. Uh, yeah, I know. Come on, let's get Edison involved. Um, and <laughs> stages one and two are really what we think of as light non-REM sleep. Stages three and four are what we think of as deep non-REM sleep. And REM sleep is really the stage that's most associated with dreaming, depending on your definition. And those two types of sleep will play out in this incredible battle for brain domination throughout the night and that sort of REM, REM and non-REM sleep will battle. Yeah, they will essentially biologically battle. And that cerebral war, as it were, in that, the, that battle is going to be won and lost every 90 minutes and then replayed every 90 minutes, such that when we fall asleep and when you and I fell asleep last night, we went down into light non-REM sleep, then deep non-REM sleep. And then after about 40 or 50 minutes, we started to rise back up and then we popped up and had a short REM sleep period. And then back down we go again, down into non-REM and up into REM. And on average, that's, that cycle is 90 minutes, but it varies across, across people. What's fascinating, however, and this is really interesting because sleep science has yet to truly come up with an explanation as to why. But in the first half of the night, the majority of those 90-minute cycles are comprised of lots of deep non-REM sleep and very little REM sleep. But as you push through to the second half of the night, that seesaw balance actually changes, and we have much more REM sleep, dream sleep, and very little deep sleep. So and we don't know why. What are we doing up there in our brains while we're going through those different stages? Well, as ever, I mean, it's an insightful question because that gets at causality. And we've done these studies where we can selectively excise, like a surgeon, your deep sleep at night. And so you still sleep a full eight hours, but through some very clever mechanisms, we can selectively wipe out the deep sleep or we can selectively wipe out the REM sleep. And you're still asleep, but for the most part, we take each one of those out and then we measure the consequences. The first is that deep sleep is critical for hitting the save button on our new memories. Deep sleep protects our memories and it saves them and cements them 
and solidifies them into the neural architecture of the brain so that you don't forget. We also know that deep sleep is critical for refreshing the short-term memory system of the brain so that when you wake up the next day, you have a cleared out sort of cache memory, almost like a computer. Or better still, the analogy would be like a USB stick. You've moved the files, you know, onto the hard drive. And the next day you wake up with your USB stick, you can start gathering new files all over again. That's a second memory benefit. Mm. The third benefit that we've discovered starts to move downstairs into the body. That deep sleep is immensely useful, firstly, for restocking the weaponry in your immune arsenal so that you wake up the next day a much more immune robust individual. Hmm. The second is the cardiovascular system. Deep sleep acts. It's almost as though it's the very best form of blood pressure medication that you could ever wish for. The vessels relax, the heart rate drops, the nervous system shifts over from that sort of fight or flight branch, which we don't really like to see for your cardiovascular system. Cortisol levels drop down and you just go into this very quiescent cardiovascular state that is wonderful as a restitutive device for your cardiovascular health. Um, probably the third thing, and maybe this almost trumps those others um, in terms of the size of the effect, is how your body regulates your blood sugar. And it's called your metabolic health. And deep sleep is critical for resetting your ability to regulate insulin and therefore regulate glucose. So the next day when you eat food, what we like to see in the field of medicine is that when you have, let's say, a big meal, um, big bowl of sort of porridge in the morning or something, you know, hearty to get you started, what we don't want to see is a big sugar, blood sugar spike because that actually is toxic to your cells of your body and your brain. And that's why we fear it for the conditions like type 2 diabetes. But deep sleep helps you better control your blood sugar response. And it helps the body and the cells of the body, firstly, receive more insulin signaling to say, hey, there's more blood sugar around. It's time for you to sort of take out the, the spike in glucose in your blood. And it helps the cells essentially stick out their straws into the bloodstream and start sucking up the blood sugar so you don't get that dangerous spike. So these are all of the ways that deep sleep at least helps your brain and your body. But then we've got REM sleep, of course. Here's what I don't get. REM sleep better have something great to offer. <laughs> or why is it fighting for dominance against these important biological benefits you get from deep sleep? It's very interesting, isn't it? One of the founding fathers of sleep research, William Dement at Stanford back in the 60s, deprived participants of REM sleep every night for about six nights. And very quickly, the thing that fell apart was not their cognitive acumen and health necessarily. It was their emotional health and wellness. They started to become incredibly emotionally erratic. They started to become very pendulum-like in their emotional activity. They would giggle and laugh very quickly, and then they would be crying five minutes later in deep sadness. They started to then hallucinate. They saw things that were not there. In other words, they were starting to become psychotic. And that happened by about day four. 
And we've now done, gosh, a vast amount of work in this area of sleep and mental health. And REM sleep is proving to be, it's REM sleep when you get it is a form of emotional first aid. It provides overnight therapy and it takes these difficult, painful experiences that we've been having and almost like a nocturnal soothing balm, it takes the sharp edges off them so that we come back the next day and we feel better about those things. And so it's not time that heals all wounds, but time during dream sleep that provides that emotional mm. convalescence. That's one of the, the benefits of REM. REM sleep is also, by the way, critical for um, creativity and Deep sleep saves those individual memories, but REM sleep then comes along and takes those individual new memories and starts colliding them with all of the back catalog of information that you've got stored in your brain. You know, I often think of dream sleep as a Google search gone wrong. Let's say that, you know, I type into Google Alan Alder and the first page is all of your incredible back catalog of, of accomplishments. But then I go to page 20 and it's about a field hockey game in Utah. <laughs> and I think, hang on a second, what on earth is... But if I read it and I look, there's a very distant, very non-obvious association. That's what dream sleep seems to be about. It's not about seeing the logical, obvious things, which is what our brain does during the day. It's about seeing the non-obvious, distant connections because when you start to collide things together that shouldn't normally go together, but when they do cause marked advances in evolutionary fitness, it sounds like the biological basis of creativity. And no wonder as a consequence, no one has ever told you, you know, Alan, you should really stay awake on a problem. <laughs> you know, people say, no, yeah, you, sleep sh on. you should sleep on it. And that's one of the functions of REM. But downstairs in the body, REM sleep is also critical for hormonal health. And this comes on to why it may be so fundamentally essential for, for life maintenance. Um, REM sleep is the time when we have our peak release of testosterone. And by the way, testosterone is essential for both men and women. It's not just um, a, a male hormone. We also know that REM sleep is critical for regulating and maintaining your ability to control body temperature. That's another reason why REM sleep is so fundamental. People should not underestimate. We live as human beings in a very narrow window, in a dangerous precipice of thermal neutrality. And if we fall off the edge of that curve, and it's a very small distance, that's why your doctor, if you go into a fever, boy, they will say, get to the hospital if it's starting to really get dangerous. It's incredibly dangerous. And REM right. sleep regulates that too. interesting thing about dream sleep to me is that mostly we're immobilized, we're frozen. And REM sleep disorder is where you, you start, the whole body starts to respond as to the dream as if it's real, which is what I experienced and it was what made me suspect I had Parkinson's. Yeah. And it doesn't seem to be widely known. No, it's not. Because I had to, I had to really request further investigations before it was determined that I really did have Parkinson's. So, firstly, as you were describing, when all of us typically go into REM sleep, 
our brain not only becomes very active in some in fact some parts of your brain during REM sleep are up to 30 percent more active than when you're awake um downstairs in the body it sends a signal all the way down your spinal cord to what's called the alpha motor neurons and essentially it paralyzes all of your voluntary skeletal muscles so you can't speak you can't talk you can't do anything that's the normal state mm. so we are locked into mm. this physical incarceration this penitentiary of paralysis when we go into dream sleep why because your brain paralyzes your body so your mind can dream safely so you don't act out your dreams but then what we started to discover, and gosh, we started to do some of this work back when I was just getting into sleep research 20 years ago, we started to see signs that Parkinson's patients, maybe even 10 up to 15 years before, were already experiencing an absence of this REM sleep paralysis such that they started to act out some of their dreams. And mm. it almost became a prognostic canary in the coal mine that it seemed to be predictive of what may be coming up in 10 to 15 years now as well you uh, understand it's not a hundred percent diagnostic just because you develop hmm. REM sleep behavioral disorder and it typically begins in sort of 50s early 60s doesn't mean that it's a predetermined then destiny but it does increase the probability and risk m markedly and if that happens, I would say people should go to their doctor. If the doctor is not aware of it, which they probably won't be because we've done surveys and we found that across about 10 different countries, doctors on average only get about one and a quarter hours of sleep education. It's not their fault. They don't know. Um, and you should alert them to this fact and then see if you can find a neurologist and particularly a board certified neurologist who also has sleep training and they will definitely understand. When we come back from our break, Matt Walker tells me about the connection between sleep and Alzheimer's disease and why that link might offer new hope in preventing its onset. This program is sponsored by the Kavli Foundation, dedicated to advancing science for the benefit of humanity. The Foundation's mission is to stimulate scientific research in astrophysics, theoretical physics, nanoscience, and neuroscience to strengthen the relationship between science and society, and to honor scientific discoveries with the Kavli Prize. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Dogs are an important part of our lives. That means protecting them from parasites. Ask your vet about NexGuard Plus, a Foxaloner, Moxidectin, and pyrantal chewable tablets. NextGuard Plus Chews provide one-and-done monthly protection against fleas, ticks, heartworm disease, roundworms, and hookworms. Plus, they're delicious and easy to give. Use with caution in dogs with a history of seizures or neurologic disorders. Dogs should be tested for existing heartworm infection prior to starting a preventive. Ask about NextGuard Plus Chews. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Matt Walker. 
For some 20 years now, he's been studying a possible role for sleep in Alzheimer's disease. I would now say that based on the weight of the evidence, I think it's fair to say that a lack of sleep may be one of the more significant lifestyle factors that can determine your risk for developing Alzheimer's disease. And I don't make that statement flippantly, but the first evidence that we found was looking at associational studies. And we saw that people who were reporting sleeping six hours or less throughout their life had a markedly increased risk of developing a lot of Alzheimer's disease toxic proteins in their brain. And two of the toxic proteins linked to Alzheimer's are called amyloid protein or beta amyloid and also another protein called tau. They seem to be two culprits in the Alzheimer's equation. And the less sleep that people were getting across the lifespan, the more of that those two Alzheimer's bad toxic proteins that they had. And then we looked at patients who had lifetime insomnia, and they also had a much higher risk of developing Alzheimer's. So too did patients with untreated sleep apnea or snoring. Now that's epidemiological correlation. Correlation is not causation. So we went in search of causality. And what we've discovered in both animal models, this is other people's work and, uh, and others in humans like myself, that if you deprive human beings of sleep or even you selectively deprive them now of just deep sleep, the next day we can measure an increase, a significant, a meaningful increase in these Alzheimer's proteins, beta amyloid and tau mm. circulating in the bloodstream, um, circulating in the cerebrospinal fluid that bathes the brain. And with special brain scanning technology, we can see those building up in the brain itself. Now, please, people listening, don't start thinking, oh my goodness, I had a bad night of sleep last night. I'm going to develop Alzheimer's <laughs> disease by the weekend. No, that's not, that's, I'm not scaremongering. And, and this is to be taken, you know, with some degree of rationality, but it, it taught us causality that rather than two things going hand in hand, if I selectively dial down one of those things, either total sleep deprivation or selective deep sleep deprivation, I can causally increase the accumulation of Alzheimer's proteins. Um, then the question became for us as a field, well, if that's true, if when you lose sleep, you instigate Alzheimer's pathology, what is it about sleep when you do get it that de-escalates and reduces or prevents the buildup of Alzheimer's pathology? Hmm. And this came on to a stunning discovery by a scientist called Macon Nedegaard at the University of Rochester. And she was working in, in mice. And for a long time before her work, we didn't think that the brain had its own cleansing system. Now we knew the body had one and everyone's familiar with your body's cleansing system. It's called the lymphatic system. But she discovered in fact that the brain has a waste system and it's called the glymphatic system named after the cells that create it called these glial cells. And what she found firstly was that yes, the the brain seems to have this device, this cleansing system, this is amazing, this waste um, expelling system. Then if that wasn't stunning enough, she made two more discoveries. First, what she found was that, that that cleansing mechanism is not always switched on in high flow volume across the 24 hour period. It's only when those mice were starting to sleep 
that the sewage system kicked into high gear and cleansed the brain of all of the metabolic detritus that was building up. And then the third discovery that she made, which is comes back to our Alzheimer's discussion, is that two of the toxic sticky proteins that the glymphatic waste system of the brain was, was clearing during deep non-REM sleep at night was this thing called beta amyloid and tau protein, the two culprits of Alzheimer's. So now we understood, okay, why is it that when you lose sleep, especially deep sleep, you increase your risk and you develop more of these proteins? We had a mechanism and then other people, and we've done some of these studies too, have now seen a very similar pulsing cleansing mechanism in the human brain itself during deep sleep. And that leads me on to perhaps the fourth area of our work, which is the most dangerous word of all, and it's the word of hope. And I am very reticent almost to discuss it, but Alzheimer's disease as a condition right now, we are very reactive um, and so we do late stage attempted treatment rather than midlife prevention. But now knowing what I know about deep sleep, and by the way, our decline in deep sleep, which is a natural part of aging, unfortunately, it doesn't start to happen in our 70s. We can see the decline in deep sleep starting to happen even in your late 30s. What if I could augment human deep sleep in midlife? And prevent the decline in the Great Depression of deep sleep across the second half of life? Could I bend the arrow of Alzheimer's disease risk sort of back on itself and sort of reduce down and de-risk that situation by intervening? So I shift from a model of late stage treatment to a model of midlife prevention. That's how we're starting to try to think about that in our latest work. Well, it's fascinating speaking with you. I, I want to hear more, and I'm sure our listeners want to hear more. I would suggest they go to your book and your podcast and pick up the conversation <laughs> there. We have, we're running out of time here. But we always end our show with seven quick questions where we learn just a little bit more about you. Of all the things, number one, of all the things there are to understand, what do you wish you really understood? Gosh, um... With sleep, I think what I would love to try to understand is how I could compress sleep, almost like a zip file. You know, you take all of those files that are larger mm. in size and then you zip them up and it, it's, a, it's a smaller file because the message from people like me that we need this somewhere between seven to nine hours for the average adult, the trend in society is only going down if you look at the, the sort of the, the global sleep loss epidemic. And I could continue to wag my finger and speak about why that's detrimental. And it's probably not going to change. The genie of sleep decline is out the bottle and I fear it's not going back in. But what if I could then instead work with the trend rather than just try to be dictatorial and push back against it? What if I could find ways to compress human sleep to a shorter amount without any detriment? Now, we have never been able to find any sort of trick like that, that truly compresses sleep so that you get all of the benefits and you show no sign of disease or sickness or brain dysfunction. Beyond sleep, I wish I could understand something called the placebo effect. 
because the placebo effect is the most reliable effect in all of pharmacology. And I think it is the most fascinating and understudied area of science. And I think it's important for several reasons. Many people will not realize that when drug companies are producing, making drugs that come to market, it's fiendishly difficult and most of them fail. Most of them fail, not always because they're not good drugs, but because they can't beat out the competition called the placebo effect in clinical trials, which tells you not about how ineffective the drug is, but how potent the placebo effect is. There is such a thing as mind over matter, and the science underlying it that's starting to emerge is utterly compelling. And I think if we can if we can harness this effect of how we can heal ourselves, I don't mean this in the sort of woo-woo non-science sense, but <laughs> if we can harness that capacity of how your brain can heal your body through this notion of mind over matter, or even heal itself, and there's evidence of the brain essentially changing the brain through the placebo effect, what what options do we have? What is untapped there? Gosh, to me, that's... Oh, if I had a second career, that's probably what I would try. <laughs> that's great. Second question. How do you tell someone they have their facts wrong? Huh. Um, well, I think the first thing I would do is listen. And then I would I'd try to quickly find what about their thinking I still find to be right. And then I'll cross-reference that rightness in the full panoply of wrongness of the statement that I see. And I'll see if I can, <laughs> firstly, just try to update my own belief system. Um, I will begin with what's called a soft start. And I'll begin by telling them what I do think about their opinion resonates with me, rather than just being completely combative. But then I will be direct and I'll be clear about why it is that they may be wrong. And then I'll be constantly reading their signals. And if I find that they are inflexible and unable to hold, let's say, conflicting evidence or even update their own mental iOS, then I'll usually just stop the interaction because it's not going to serve any purpose. You know, it's not going to change anything. So I don't know if that's a logical way of approaching it or makes any sense, but that's probably how I approach Sounds it. Sounds like a very practical way. Mm -hmm. Third, Third quick question. What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? <laughs> if you're a sleep scientist, trust me, there are no shortage of utterly bizarre questions. Um, I think the best question I ever had, oh, um, I was, in, I was at a, doing a, a speaking appearance in Europe. Someone asked me, <laughs> if there was a sleep Olympics, which activity would you want to compete in? And I just thought that is the most brilliant question. <laughs> and I think my answer was I would do the decathlon because I would want to take part in all of the full richness, the full kaleidoscope of sleep's brilliance that I would want to be doing all of those. So I, I would say the decathlon within sleep. Um, isn't it? I just thought that's such a good question. Ah, oh, if only I could be as creative. Okay, next question. How do you stop a compulsive talker? <laughs> now, now I'm thinking back on our interview and thinking I'm probably very <laughs> guilty of doing that. I need to know. Yeah, um, I, I'll, <laughs> mm, I'll usually 
wait until they say something that has a sort of a common launch pad for other people, for integrating other people. And then I'll usually sort of say, oh, um, Steve, can I just pause you for a second? That's such a fascinating point. And I want to see if if Jessica has had experience, because I think she has had experience in that based on that fact. And and therefore, I'll sort of try to help pivot the, the spotlight focus of the conversation onto someone else. And then I'll keep trying to sort of perpetuate that. If that doesn't work, which sometimes it doesn't, because the person then very quickly boomerangs the control back to themselves if they are quite self-centered and egotistical. Um, at that point, I'll usually just remove myself from the conversation. And that's usually what I would do in the extreme. Okay, let's say you're at a dinner table sitting next to someone you don't know. How do you strike up a genuine conversation? I think if it's if it's a couple that are sitting next to me, then I will usually ask them about the very first time that they met, because I think people so enjoy uh. reliving those moments of positive, positive significance. But it also helps me very much to learn a great deal about those two individuals. But if it's just an individual, I'll usually ask them, what attachment do you currently have that is most holding you back? Hmm. And it usually requires people to stop and think for a second. And I, it's a very intimate question, I feel. And I always tell them to say, look, it, it, you know, don't worry if it feels a little personal. I know that's a very direct question, but it leads them to be vulnerable with me. And then it allows me, it almost gives me permission as an unfortunate British person to be that dangerous thing that we don't like doing, which has also become vulnerable with them. And at that point, very quickly, do you deepen a connection between two people? Okay, next to last, what gives you confidence? Connection with other humans. I gain immense confidence, yeah. Okay, last question. What book changed your life? I think the book that really pushed me into brain science was a book called The Mind of the Mnemonicist. And a mnemonicist is a, one of those sort of supercharged memory individuals, the people who can't forget anything. And I think it, the, the tagline was a small book about a vast memory. And it was written back in the 50s uh, by a neurologist called um, Alfred Luria. And he was studying people with just exceptional memories. And the book is in some ways a story of two halves. He starts off thinking, I don't believe this. I'm going to find the break point of where they just fail to be able to remember. And I will show that they can't remember everything. And he couldn't find the break point. These people just seem to be able to memorize everything. Huh. And then this was what was genius. And it taught me to be a counterfactual scientist or a counterfactual thinking scientist, which I think is one of the hardest things to do. And I, I still fail miserably. He then flipped the question. And instead of saying, what is the benefit of always being able to remember? He then started to say, I wonder if there is any detriment to never being able to forget. And what he learned was that the lives of the, these people are not lives that you and I would wish to live because they have these hyper intense memories. And it's actually quite debilitating. And gosh, did that teach me a lesson into how to think about the two sides of any scientific coin. So I would definitely recommend that book. Well, you've really been a treasure. 
Thanks for being here, Matt. Lovely to connect, Alan. This has been clear and vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the Kavli Foundation for sponsoring this episode. The Kavli Foundation is dedicated to advancing science for the benefit of humanity. Matt Walker is professor of neuroscience and psychology at the University of California, Berkeley, and he's the founder and director of the Center for Human Sleep Science. His best-selling book is called Why We Sleep, and his podcast is the Matt Walker Podcast. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Shedd, with help from our associate producer, Gene Chimay. Our publicist is Sarah Hill. Our researcher is Elizabeth Ohini, and the sound engineer is Erica Huang. The music is courtesy of the Stefan Koenig Trio. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with Kashmir Hill. She's the New York Times reporter whose new book, Your Face Belongs to Us, has the scary subtitle, A Secretive Startup's Quest to End Privacy as We Know It. I remember one photo was a woman um, in profile kind of walking on a sidewalk in the background of someone else's photo. And I didn't think it was me at first until... I saw the jacket, I kind of focused on the jacket I was wearing, and it was from a, an American vintage store in Tokyo. And I said, wow, that's, that's me, even though I can't even recognize myself in that photo or remember where I was walking. It's kind of incredible what the, the technology is capable of now in terms of when it can recognize you in a photo. Kashmir Hill and how now everyone can know your face and not just your face. Next time on Clear and Vivid, For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Dogs are an important part of our lives. That means protecting them from parasites. Ask your vet about NexGuard Plus, a Foxaloner, Moxidectin, and Pyrantal chewable tablets. NexGuard Plus chews provide one-and-done monthly protection against fleas, ticks, heartworm disease, roundworms, and hookworms. Plus, they're delicious and easy to give. Use with caution in dogs with a history of seizures or neurologic disorders. Dogs should be tested for existing heartworm infection prior to starting a preventive. Ask about NexGuard Plus chews. My son had a gift with technology. With reliable internet at home through the Internet Essentials program, the world opened up. He's part of this next generation of young people who feel they can thrive. Through Project Up, Comcast is committing $1 billion to help open doors for the next generation with the connectivity and skills they need to build a future of unlimited possibilities. At Audi, expectations matter. It's why what's standard on every Audi SUV are features that exceed yours. How we get there matters. The Audi family of SUVs. Progress you can feel.